Mr. Derek Veenhoff. He's better known as Deke. Drinking liquor with DJ Deke, we out laughing. Yeah, Deke. Welcome back to the show, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, this is Deke, your host, and I'm here today with Tanya Israel. Uh, Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, you are an author and a professor, you're a professor of counseling psychology at University of California, uh, Santa Barbara. And your book uh, you've authored is called uh, Beyond Your Bubble, How to Connect Across the Political Divide. Um, right. So interesting title for interesting times. Um, so first, can you tell us a bit more about your academic background and how you got interested in this topic? Absolutely. So my background is in counseling psychology. And so when there's a problem, I don't just want to know more about the problem. I want to know how to help people with it. So my research for the last 25 years has actually been about uh, LGBTQ psychology and interventions to support uh, LGBTQ folks. And this work that I do on dialogue across political lines also started a long time ago. Um, it just wasn't always the focus. I started by bringing uh, together pro-choice and pro-life people to have dialogue with each other back in the 90s. And then uh, this work on LGBTQ stuff has also brought me into challenging conversations. I've done training for law enforcement, uh, done conversations around religion and sexual orientation conflicts. And then after the 2016 election, it was clear that we were having trouble bridging the divide in our country. And so I turned my attention back to this and started by creating something that I call the flow chart that will resolve all political conflict in our country, because I'm optimistic like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, spoiler alert, it has not actually resolved all political conflict in our country yet. Uh, so I so I kept doing more. I created a workshop that I offered to a couple hundred people, and then I wrote a book. And it's really very practical. It's about how do we actually have these conversations? Now, what can we say about like an overview or the history of sort of divide? Like, is there, we hear this notion that things are getting more and more divided every day and polarization is increasing. Is that at all, is that true? Or is that a bit of a myth? Has polarization always been a part of society or? Such a good question. So polarization and, and conflict has always been part of this country since its founding. And if, uh, if you need any more information about that, all you have to do is go see Hamilton. And that will give you all the background, <laughs> or at least some of it, about some of that conflict, and you know, which, which can end up in a duel, but I prefer dialogue. Um, so we can see it's, it's always been there. Um, there's there's data that show that we have become more polarized and we're more polarized than we have ever been in recent history. Um, so the Pew Foundation has been doing research on this over decades. Uh, whenever, you know, I look at that, like I, I used to say, oh, we're more polarized than we've ever been. And then people would say, well, what about the Civil War? And I'm like, okay, well, since Pew started collecting data. And so indeed we are getting more polarized. However, that's not the whole story, because it turns out that even though we are getting more polarized, we think we're more polarized than we actually are. And so some of the polarization is in our perception and our perception of polarization very likely actually um, causes greater polarization, uh, not just on the issues, but even more, our divide is about how we view people on the other side and our disconnection from people on the other side. 
Right. So I think in some of your writing, uh, you've mentioned that, for example, the research shows that uh, people say on the left will perceive people on the right side of the aisle as further right than they may be and vice versa, where in reality, most people are maybe center right or center left. And there's uh, perhaps larger voices on some of the fringes of the political aisles that maybe influences our thinking that way. Is that the case? Exactly, exactly. So there's some great research by this group more in common. And they looked at, you know, where are people in terms of their values, their voting behavior, all kinds of things, and found that indeed there are people on the extremes on both the left and the right. And then there's more traditional uh, Republicans and Democrats. But most people fall into what they called the exhausted majority. And these are the people who are you know, in the middle in terms of the issues. But there's another piece that's interesting about, about this that, um, that I've learned about more recently, which is about not just polarization between left and right, but there's something called affective polarization, which is we have different kinds of reactivity or levels of reactivity to, uh, to the news, um, to, uh, to people who disagree with us. And the people on the extremes in left and right tend to be more activated affectively. So in terms of their emotions, they're, they're, they tend to be the news junkies, the people who are really in depth into it and who are posting on social media and all of that. And so the people who are more in the middle are not only more neutral in terms of the political issues, but also more uh, not, not as reactive emotionally to what's going on and, and to people on either side. And frankly, they're, they're tired of that kind of vitriol that they're hearing from people on both sides. Yeah, that makes sense. And it seems like a self-fulfilling prophecy where if you are one of those polarized people who does post a lot, um, the polarization itself makes you double down because you want to, those other polarized people are getting at you so much that, uh, you really want to get them to your side or are closer to the center of the issue. And so you're going to, uh, you know, post even more for that reason. But uh, that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned this country. Now, full disclosure, I am in Canada. So uh, we have a little bit different experience than America. But a lot of the issues that America faces tends to um, come over the border uh, digitally, let's say, these days. A lot of the ideologies and the, and the arguments. We're exporting our polarization. Yeah, no, exactly. So how, do you, how does that... Um, difference factor in like, let's say in Europe or Asia or other parts of the the world? Is this a problem worldwide? Is it? We are seeing more polarization around the world, not just in the US or in North America and Canada. And so it is something that we, you know, we, we need to figure out how to deal with it. We might deal with it slightly differently in different places. You know, my work on dialogue, I feel like I developed within the context of North America, and particularly in terms of U.S. politics and and culture. And granted, we have a lot of cultures in uh, in North America. And so I, I sort of give that caveat that it there might be slightly different ways of approaching dialogue in different cultural contexts and in, and in different countries. So we know some of the hot topic issues um, are, like you mentioned, um, pro-choice or abortion issues. There's, um, of course, vaccines have become politicized um, today's era. So in in your writings, also, you've mentioned that trust is one of the biggest factors, um, not always just shouting at the other person and, and 
providing them information that you think will change their mind, but rather what is the trust factor between you and that person? What is the relationship? So um, how can you describe that? Uh, we know, let's say someone is pro-vaccine and they know someone that's anti-vaccine, they might just want to mm-hmm. throw links at them, throw information. So what is the trust factor? How does it come into play? Wow. So many questions right there. That's great. It really gets at what people, what, what's distressing people these days about the divide. So let's talk about vaccines uh, specifically. I, I actually just posted an article on Medium uh, because people have been asking me, like, what am I supposed to do? And people are so frustrated. So the first thing is that, and, and I'm hearing a lot of frustration. There's frustration on both sides. So I would say people who aren't vaccinated are hearing a lot of um, they're, they're sort of getting bombarded by people who want them to get vaccinated and are pushing them to get vaccinated. And also who don't seem to care very much about hearing where they're coming from and maybe why they're not vaccinated. And so it's sort of coming from a bombardment, but not actual, um, not actual warmth and connection place. And so the thing we know about people and their behavior is that that's not going to change behavior. Telling people what to do, telling them that they're selfish, telling them that they're stupid is not ever a good way (laughs) to try to bring somebody around to your point of view on anything. Just everyone take note. (laughs) That's just generalizable. Um, And I'm also hearing frustration on the part of people who um, are tr- want to encourage other people to get vaccinated. And they're like, I've got research data here that I can share. I'm looking at this and I'm trying to share this with people. And, and I, you know, and I'm worried about them and I'm worried about, you know, people I care about and I'm worried about myself. And, and it seems frustrating. Like I can't seem to get them to, to get vaccinated. So the first thing is to recognize that, People who aren't vaccinated, they're not necessarily Mm anti-vaxxers. This is where we're likely to see people as the most extreme version of the other side. And so I think the first thing that we do is, you know, we we don't treat everyone who's not vaccinated as an anti-vaxxer. And then we care about them. You know, we express that we care. And then we try to find out more about what is it that's going on for them. I was talking to somebody I know who's not vaccinated. And I said, you know, I, she's, she was feeling bombarded by people and like, there wasn't even space for her to make a decision and, and really reflect on it. But I said, you know, I'd like to hear more about what you're thinking, but you're probably tired of talking about that. Cause everybody's been, you know, reaching out to you. And she said, well, actually nobody's asked. And that's the thing. It's like, let's find out more about what's going on with people. Let's create some space for them to have so that we can hear, let's be actually curious about what's going on for them instead of just, you know, saying, this is what I think you should do. Yeah, that's so true. And I have many anecdotal scenarios as well. Um, I'm sort of known in my friend group as a more vocal, like to debate topics all the time. So people tend to, they know that about me. So they come to me with controversial topics and sometimes it riles me up because I sometimes don't want to talk about these things or, you know, and, and people say to me, well, Derek, you just always want to be right. And maybe that's the case with every person. We love to be right. Um, And maybe that's a little bit of something with me as as well. Um, But I've noticed that uh, I took the time 
with some of my friends who were anti or hesitant, let's say, on the vaccine. Um, I tried to be as patient as I could. It's been a long pandemic, so I've been steadfast of my opinions, but a lot of them have hopped off the fence and got the shot. Uh, and some of them have mentioned that it, it was because partially um, things that I said to them. So it's tough for me to, in hindsight to look back and say, okay, what things did and didn't work. Um, but I think it's clear that any times that I might've raised my voice or uh, bombarded people probably wasn't uh, the thing that worked. Um, but I know near the, like, let's say recently uh, the conversation had, the conversations had become more emotional and more um, based around, Hey, I care about your health. And I want you to know that that's why I'm uh, discussing these topics. And some of them have, you know, said that back to me that partially that's because it was so important to you in the way that you said it to me, as well as we have mandates coming in and yeah. there's, there's many factors that, that, that it uh, sounds like you're having these conversations as actual conversations, like not on social life. media. Yeah, 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 exactly. Which, I tried to stay away from social media. There was one post I did that was a long post that I just suggested, Hey, here's what I think about vaccines and here's why I think they help. But I tried to avoid, you know, sometimes going on every day or retweeting things and all that. It's yeah. unless it was sort of hard science things that I liked to promote, but you do have to pick your battles, especially yeah. in social media. But yes, in, in person is uh, what I was referring to. Well, and let me say like, bravo for doing that because it's, that's hard, you know, it's hard to make the time to do that. And it's hard to, you know, um, find ways of connecting with people, especially now in a pandemic, but that is actually going to be so much more effective. Just the fact of having that conversation in person, or even if you do it, you know, on video or on the phone. Any of that is better than doing it on social media. There, there's some really interesting research that shows that on social media, if you are, you know, providing a contrasting opinion to somebody, not only are they not likely to come around to your perspective, but they're more likely to get farther apart from where you are. And so when I talk to people who are feeling really frustrated, most of their conversation, most of their conversations in quotes uh, are on social media. And not only is that, you know, you can't get people's vocal intonation and all that, but it's actually sort of a public forum. And when people are challenged in a public forum, they're much more likely to want to defend their perspective than to change it. So when we talk about social media and, and maybe you could lay out, um, some of the flowchart for us in, mm. uh, for this question, but, um, sort of, does social media, does our relationship with it have to change? Do we have to change something or, or is social media, is there something that should change about social media perhaps? I think it's useful to consider the different ways we communicate with people and what we want to use those different ways for. So social media, I think is really good for a lot of things. You know, it's it helps me to stay connected with my best friend from fifth grade. It's, you know, it creates some sense of community. I know some people who are really vulnerable there and get support. Uh, there are a lot of things we can celebrate each other's accomplishments there. There's a lot of things that are very good about social media. It is not good for communicating across the political divide. And so we just need to find other ways of doing that. It's just not going to be the most effective way. So if we can, you know, say to somebody on social media, when we see their post, oh, I'd like to hear more about what you have to say. Can we set up a time to talk? 
that's going to be a better way to go. Um, I, I think that that's a, you know, again, it takes more time. It takes some investment. So we might want actually do that. But I think knowing that it's not going to be effective for us to just throw out their contrasting views or even contrasting science um, it isn't actually going to shift things. And it's more likely to create barriers and also generate our own frustration. Hmm. So we don't want to give away all the secrets of the book, of course, but. Uh, oh, heck, I'm happy about... to give away the secrets of the book. Ask me <laughs> well, anything. <you> <laughs> so the flowchart thing. So what are some of the approaches that perhaps we've we may do we've been doing wrong? And, and what are the some of the ways that we can start some of these conversations in a better way? The first thing to do is be intentional about deciding if you want to have one of these conversations and what your goals are. When I was doing the workshop, I would always ask people like, what is it that brings you to dialogue? And I'm, and I'm, I've been doing the workshop throughout the pandemic. I'm starting to do it in person again, which is really exciting. And I'm hearing exactly the same things for the last few years. I want to maintain a connection with somebody and I'm having trouble doing that because of our politics. Mm. I want to convince or persuade someone. I want to heal the divide or find common ground, or I simply cannot fathom how someone can think or act or vote as they do. And so with any of those goals, the thing that you want to do is to promote connection and understanding. And so you want to say, okay, well, are those my goals? And are those the most important goals for me? And if they are, and you want to do that, then go into that conversation. If those aren't your goals, then, you know, don't, um, then the flow chart's not for you. Mm. But if that is something that you want to do, then just, if you just want to vent and express your feelings and all of that, and you want to do that more than you want to do those other things, then also this conversation is probably not a good one for you. But otherwise, the things you want to do are to listen. And you want to listen in such a way that promotes understanding. So rather than sort of thinking about what your next um, zinger is going to be back at somebody as they're talking, really try to hear what they're saying and share back to them what you heard, reflect or summarize what they've said instead of sharing your own view. And then ask questions that encourage them to elaborate. Don't ask questions that try to sort of like push them into a corner or into a specific um, outcome. And then you also might find that as you're listening to somebody and you're hearing views that disagree with you, it might push your buttons a little bit. So we have to have tools that are going to help us to manage our emotions. So it doesn't just become a screaming match or so we don't just shut down with a fight, flight, or freeze response. And so even something as simple as taking slow, deep breaths or feeling your feet on the floor, you know, noticing that kind of physical sensation or even touching your own hand, any of those things will help to ground you physically and be in a better place to have that dialogue. And then I've got, you know, some ideas about things that can be more helpful for persuasion and also trying to understand and do perspective taking. So those are some of the tools that are most useful in having a productive dialogue that's actually going to help you to reach your goals. Yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like the natural tendency of a lot of people. When when somebody says something and disagrees with you, I, I know the feeling of getting, um, you know, uh, hyped up about that or trying to, like you said, corner someone with uh, some piece of information, you know, what about this type of thing? And mm -hmm. that's supposed to corner them and, and they won't be able to respond. But uh, it, it definitely makes a lot more sense if you're trying to maintain a, a relationship or 
uh, persuade someone of something, let's say with vaccines that, that you believe will uh, protect their health coming mm-hmm. from sort of a, a good place, uh, not just trying to win an argument. Um, how, how do we see the media playing a factor in polarization and um, uh, discourse? Um, mm-hmm. In some of your writings, I've noticed that you've mentioned that the media can exacerbate some of these things. Sure. And the media is doing um, a couple of things. The media is reflecting some of the things that are going on in our, in our divide. And, but they're also exacerbating it. So when we watch TV and we see people, you know, as representatives from different sides of an issue, they're usually the people who are more extreme and sometimes who are more emotionally uh, engaged in it. And that in some ways makes for more, um, for TV or for radio, that's going to draw people in more because we're interested in conflict. I mean, it's the same thing in, you know, TV series, you know, that, that people want to, you've got to have some kind of conflict, but when that's all that we're seeing, it reinforces that idea that people are only the extremes. So, when I say to people, well, who are you imagining having this conversation with? They don't think oh, I'm imagining talking to my next door neighbor. They're imagining talking to, you know, an elected official or one of the, you know, people who they saw on TV or they hear on the radio. And they say, well, it's not very likely you're going to actually have that conversation. So like, let's think about somebody who's a little bit closer to your experience, but that's not who um, they're viewing most of the time. That's, you know, so it can really skew our perceptions of where people are. One of the interesting things, I was talking about that exhausted majority. The exhausted majority um, not only doesn't watch news as much as the people on the extremes, but they watch different news. They watch network news instead of cable news that's more sort of geared toward one side or the other. And interestingly, not only do they um, then have some different kinds of perceptions of political issues, but they actually have more accurate perceptions of the people on the extremes than the people on each extreme have of each other. So there's something about the sort of not taking in so much news and taking in news from a more neutral source that um, maybe helps people to have clearer views of the whole range of people. Hmm. Just being a chill person. It sounds sounds like a good time. Everybody, um, just be a chill person. That's pretty much all it is. <laughs> you know, something just came to mind about now. We let's say we have the majority, and then we have people on the poll that are polarized. Now, some of them may want to engage in the conversation and persuade people, but what about the polarized people who don't want to have a conversation? Is that is that something that uh, yeah? How yeah, how would you incentivize shouldn't. them or? I, I don't feel like we need to incentivize them. Okay, I feel so they should like, just, yeah, okay. I, I feel like I, I see so much potential in conversations that don't involve trying to pull in people who don't want to have the conversations. Like there's right. enough people who might be open to these conversations if they knew that people weren't as extreme as they think they are. Mm. And that it's not about having conversations with people who are the most extreme on the other side. But there's this whole exhausted majority who we could be having conversations with, um, except they don't want to if we are too strident and emotionally activated around it. And we could listen to them because there's clearly something that they're understanding that we're not understanding on the extremes about 
who all the people are on the different sides, and they might even have a more nuanced view of a lot of the issues that they could help us to understand. Interesting. Yeah. It's tough when you see, uh, for example, in Canada, we have an election going on and you have certain individuals that are throwing rocks uh, and gravel at uh, Prime Minister Trudeau on his campaign trail. And when you see an act like that on television, um, it's hard to ignore that type of thing because it's it's a, it's a violence, essentially. And mm-hmm. that's something that who knows what they'll throw the next day type of thing. Um, and it's it's definitely hard for people to watch that, uh, you know, watch that and think, uh, I got to listen to these people, I got to understand what their point is. Um, So I don't know if is there truth to on some on edges of the polarization, maybe there are people that are too far gone. But let's not assume that uh, everybody on that side is like, is there a conversation to be had about with people that throw stones, political leaders? (laughs) Uh, You could, I mean, again, what's your goal? And you're probably not going to bring them around to your point of view. But if you want to understand more of where they're coming from, if you're like, I don't get how people can do that. And there's someone in front of you who could actually help you to get that. What an opportunity that is. But you also have to recognize that that's what your goal is. And if that's what your goal is, you have to do the things that are going to draw them out so you can hear more from them. Right. So almost the most difficult part would be getting over yourself. If you really want to understand why they're doing is getting yourself out of the way to truly bridge that divide and have a conversation about that, even though you can't fathom their actions or, or right. why they would think that. It, it turns out, you know, people have these motivations to have dialogue, but also people have more than one motivation at a time. So they might feel motivated to want to understand, but they also want to express their views freely. And some of that is because we think it's going to make a difference for somebody else. Some of it is also, you know, you used the word debate before that, that you like to debate and people, you know, know that about you. And one of the things about debate, when we look at formal debates, in formal debates, there's two sides of an issue and people are presenting data, they're presenting stories, they're doing it in a compelling way. But the goal of debate is never to try to convince the other team to vote for you. It's to try to convince a judge or an audience audience, to vote for you, right? Right, right, And so we never have an idea with debate that you can actually convince somebody who's making the opposite argument to come around to your side. That's actually a great point. Yeah, of course. No, that's a great point. Yeah. Interesting. Now, um, what about your personal life? Have you always been good at these conversations? Did you have to teach yourself how to have these conversations? I was not always good at these conversations, Um, but something that has really helped me, that that group that I did to bring together pro-choice and pro-life folks um, was really transformative for me because I'm very firmly pro-choice and and have been as long as I've had an opinion about abortion. Um, And when I actually got together with people who were pro-life, because I had always thought, well, I don't understand, you know, how they can see things that way. I don't understand how you can be pro-life and be for the death penalty, you know, for example, like that seems like a logical inconsistency. But when I realized that I was evaluating their conclusions based on my assumptions and values, like if you start with my assumptions and values, you can't logically get to their conclusions. But if I actually heard where they were coming from and I followed their own thinking about it, yeah, sure. That made sense. It was just not a way that I was ever going to see it. 
but that doesn't mean that it's not a way that they should see it and that they can see it. And it humanized people on the other side for me. They weren't just the people who are outside clinics protesting. They weren't just people who were, you know, shooting abortion providers. Most people are not doing those things. Most pro-life people are not doing those things. And it was really helpful for me to know more about where other people were coming from. Because if I treat anyone who's pro-life as if they are somebody who's outside the clinic protesting, mm -hmm. then one, they're, they're going to feel misunderstood and stereotyped by me. And they're, they're going to be right about that. I am misunderstanding them and stereotyping them. I, I got to a place of what we sometimes call intellectual humility of recognizing that even though I have strong and very deeply held values, I can still be curious about and respectful of somebody else's views. And if I can't do that, then we're just not going to be able to have a productive conversation. And if we can't have a productive conversation, now I'm going to get to like bigger levels. I, I feel like it really puts our democracy at risk. We're going to have different views on things and we need to have a forum where we can value people, even if they have views that are different from our own and that we can engage with people, even if they have views that are different from our own. Otherwise, you know, the more divided we are, the more vulnerable we are to both internal and external kinds of uh, powers. Yeah. And I think one of the greatest points we've covered today is um, the fact of having conversations in real life. And you mentioned these workshops, for example, like this idea of typing things online or even by text message does it takes too much away from our human communication. And um, if somehow we could have more of these conversations in, in real life, I think that would be beneficial. Um, this I, this pro-choice and pro-life debate has been going on for, for a long time, of course. And it's so true what you say about understanding the other side, because if you have the values of, let's say, a, a, a Christian, uh, somebody of the Christian religion that believes in the spirit and, and their idea of conception, well, to them, it makes perfect sense to every baby that's conceived should be should be born. And if you're putting a stop to that, you're ending a life, you know, it gets to semantics as, as well there. But um, mm -hmm. starting from a place of understanding and, and not considering the other side to be evil, because this happens with with vaccines as well, whether it's mandate, you know, you want to mandate me to take this shot that I'm not too sure of, or you want to uh, not take the shot and put people at risk, right? Both sides see the other side as on some level being evil, but that's yeah. such an extreme way to put it. And you're so right that we'll never bridge those divides if we, uh, if we start from those, those places. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's some interesting work in moral foundations theory that says that people on the left and right all have morals but we just have different priorities in terms of our morals. And so that also says that if we're trying to convince somebody of something based on our own moral framework, that's not the right framework. You know, we've got to work from where somebody else is and what their values are and their values are, you know, like, like if we just go in there putting down their values, that's just not going to get us anywhere. And it's, it's not going to, um, it's not going to help us to understand more. I, I feel like sometimes this lack of understanding has become a badge of honor. Like I can't understand how people can do that. Like, like I feel proud of myself for not understanding. Right. 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 <laughs> and I think that that's just so sad that we might be feeling that way, that, that not being able to understand other people 
is a real failing, I think, on our part. And let's try to be curious and understand because our human relationships are so important in our, in our families, in our schools, in our communities, in our countries, and not being able to understand um, is going to cause disconnection on all of those levels. And just as human beings, we need connection. And so that's just something that's, that's uh, an underlying um, need and uh, want that we all have as humans. Well, it's definitely interesting stuff and it's very positive and um, um, optimistic uh, subjects uh, because, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to need this uh, bridging of these divides in the, in, the f- in the future utopia that we're hopefully uh, traveling towards. Um, so I just wanted to thank you again for your time and let's uh, make sure everybody knows where to find you. It's uh, at by dialogue on Instagram, where you post a lot of interesting carousels and images uh, and quotes that I, I find are good sort of quick tidbits for people to, to catch on to. So that's on your thank Instagram you. and your website. Uh, uh, just, just to clarify, it's at BYB dialogue for oh, beyond sorry. your bubble dialogue. Yeah. Beyond your bu- BYB dialogue. That's right. Mm-hmm. And your website. TanyaIsrael.com. Right. And anywhere else people should be directed to you're on medium as well. So you have some articles. I'm on, on medium. Media. I'm on LinkedIn. And if you go to the website, you can view and download a copy of the flow chart and you know, that's all you're going to need. I'm going to make the flow chart, my wallpaper for a while. See if I can't absorb it. Into <laughs> my brain. Fantastic. Okay. Thanks again for your time and all the best. Thank you so much. 